Now we'll just pick up where we left off. And you remember that we're talking about the philosophic shift uh, in the that led to the revolution in Berkeley in 1964. And there's two roots, as I pointed out, to this two two things that really are the roots for the revolution in Berkeley in 64. And the one is the philosophic side, and the other is the scientific side. And you could choose either arbitrarily first, but I've just chosen the philosophic one. And we went back to Plato, and Plato's emphasis on the fact that you have to have an absolute if you're going to have meaning to life as well as real morals or even epistemological base. And now we've come through Thomas Aquinas, and I pointed out that it seems to me that you really have to understand what happened after Thomas Aquinas if you're going to understand really the roots uh, in which we're working today. And at the very end of my lecture this morning, I was emphasizing the fact that Thomas Aquinas uh, though he himself would not have wanted it to lead, perhaps, to the place where it did lead, whether you're thinking of it being Aquinas or Aquinas' followers, led to the place wherein you would have a fallen will, but not a completely fallen man. That you would have uh, the intellect was somewhat free. The intellect was somewhat free. And uh, that he was dealing with the particulars in the Aristotelian direction, in contrast to the Platonic thinking, and I want to bring in later and show you in just a few moments, that then the Platonic thinking raised again uh, at the time of the High Renaissance. So we find, therefore, that Aquinas set this forth, but there's something that it does seem to me, as you know from my work, where the evangelicals have been very, very weak. And I think one of the places where we've been exceedingly weak is not understanding that you cannot fight theological battles only on the level of theology. Uh, that theological things and philosophic things spread out through the culture. And as they spread out through the culture, you have to understand where they are, where the battle's being fought, in other areas, as well as in the theological area, for the simple reason that's in these other areas where it's apt to have the most impact on the, co on the, on the surrounding people. In other words, the theological discussions are not abstracted. They're, they have to be fought on the theological level, but we especially, it seems to me, with our concept of, uh, a concept of, uh, shutting ourselves off from the world's thinking, that we have tended, we have tended because of this to drift into the situation where we haven't understood that other cultural manifestations follow the theological ones. And that most people are not influenced primarily by the theological discussions of theological ones. Most people are influenced by the theo theological, uh, trends through something like art and these other areas. Now, it is gone, it's interesting that you have a repetition here. In both the modern thinking and the high renaissance, you have go through the same cycle. I wouldn't want to say that all, absolutely, that it always goes through this cycle. I haven't made that much of a study. But I am intrigued that it's the two points that are so important to our understanding, the high renaissance and modern thinking, that you did go through the same cycle. The thinkers came first. And in this case, it was Thomas Aquinas. But the way this had its impact throughout throughout the world of the Renaissance was not just directly through uh, Thomas Aquinas as Thomas Aquinas, but because the people in other areas began to follow him. And first of all, went to the area of painting. And the interesting thing is that this is exactly the same cycle as in modern things, as we shall see in a little while. That it went through the thinkers first, 
And then it began in the area of painting and then spread out into other areas. Now, curiously enough, it was the same with the Renaissance. And again, I'm not trying to lay down any universal principle. I'm only laying down an observation. And that is that the, the painters came first as influenced by Thomas Aquinas. And you had Chimbui, Chimbui in, uh, in Italy, and he began to paint this work. You could begin to see the influence of Thomas Aquinas in his work. And curiously enough, and I think this is important to understand, the first influences of Thomas Aquinas were good influences. Because the previous, the people who had been before Thomas Aquinas had largely been Byzantine. And these people had had no place for nature. But after Thomas Aquinas, you remember my statement about Plato, uh, Plato and then, uh, and then Aristotle, with Aristotle being interested in the, uh, interested in the, uh, particulars. Well, that meant interest in nature, among other things. And so there became a renewed interest in nature. And it showed itself very largely in Chimbui, who lived from 1240 to 1302. And Chimbui's main interest was, a main importance was that he influenced Giotto. And Giotto lived from 1267 to 1337. A very good emphasis on nature began to come forward. And we really shouldn't be giving these lectures here. We ought to be in Florence to give these lectures. I ought to be able to take you down to the museums this afternoon in Florence and show you the paintings where you can see very clearly exactly what was happening. Uh, incidentally, I have a, a series of lectures which I call the, the Christian Goes to Florence and Finds the Modern Man. And I, I gave it on a portable tape recorder uh, going through the museums of Florence. So if any of you are going to go to Florence, I'd suggest you listen to those before you go. I think you'll enjoy Florence better if you listen to these lectures first, in which we go from the baptistry to one place to another place. And I show these things uh, immediately before one's eyes. And even if you don't have the illustrations in front of you, I think the tapes would help you understand these things better. But Giotto, Giotto began to paint nature as nature. Giotto began to paint nature as nature rather than an abstraction. Prior to this time, prior to this time, men were not interested in nature. They lived in nature, but they simply lived in the midst of it. The great things were in the Byzantine world, in the symbolic world of the high and the holy. Uh, in the area, you see, very different from Aristotle's emphasis on the particulars. And then after the painters, interestingly enough, it spread to the writers. And the intriguing thing to this, in this to me, is that that's exactly the order that it took in the modern world again, uh, leading to modern thought in our own generation, or slightly before our own generation, around 1912. That it proceeded from the, it proceeded, went to the first of the thinkers, and then from the thinkers it went into the area of the painters, Chimbu and Giotto, and then it went to the writers. And the first writer, and the most important one in this area, was Dante. And Dante lived 1265 to 1321. And because of this interest, uh, because of this thing which already was found in Thomas Aquinas, uh, of the factor of the, of sort of an ind independent, independent intellect, in Dante you begin to feel very strongly the mixture, the mixture of the, the classical Greek world, uh, and the, uh, and the world of the Bible. So in Dante's Inferno, for example, you can't understand Dante's Inferno unless you understand uh, Greek classical thinking as well as biblical thinking. Dante's Inferno does not just come from the Bible. It comes from the Bible plus, uh, plus the classical thinking. And that's, you see, because, uh, because suddenly uh, Thomas Aquinas had opened the door to all this. 
but you must always recognize, you must always recognize, and this is a rule, that it's the great, what I call, elbows of history, where directions are completely changed. When you're moving in one direction, you suddenly change in another. There's almost always some, some great thinker or a few great thinkers who open the door and change the direction, and then everybody follows. And you can ask which comes first, the era which makes uh, the era or the man. And this is an endless discussion. But I would always say, let's not get bogged down into this. It's when the two come together that suddenly you have great changes. And you were having tremendous changes moving into the area of the high renaissance. And then, of course, in our own generation, you have tremendous changes moving into our own, our own world. And then after that, you have Boccaccio, wrote, lived 1313 to 1375, Petrarch, 1304-1374. This emphasis on nature beginning to have its proper place is an interesting factor in Petrarch because it is said, and I, I'm not sure it's right, but because it is said that he's the first man who climbed a mountain to climb a mountain. That before this, you climbed a mountain if you were hunting a sheep, but you didn't go mountain climbing. But Petrarch, it is said, remember I'm not vouching for this, but Petrarch, it is said, really climbed a mountain to climb a mountain. In other words, nature began to be important as nature. Now, my emphasis is that at this point, this was not a bad thing, this was a good thing. Because nature had been put in chains. Nature had been considered unimportant. Only the spiritual, in quotes, had been considered important in the Byzantine world. The natural had not been considered important. So, so you have to say two things about Thomas Aquinas and his emphasis. First of all, he opened the door to something good, and then the pendulum on, swept on beyond this, and as we shall see, it became something bad. Now, it was, not only, it was not only in the South that this influence began to have uh, an emphasis on the validity of nature, but in the North, uh, spreading out of the South. And you can have Van Eyck or Van Eck, depending how you want to pronounce his name, 1380 to 1441 in the North. And he began to paint backgrounds. He began to paint light. He began to paint nature. And in one of my books, I guess it's Escape from Reason, I forget, but I think it's there, I point out that there's a little painting he made, illumination from the top of a page in 1416 of a baptism of Christ. And he's the first man who paints nature as a background. An amazing factor. Nature before this had not had an interest. Uh, the man who carried this to its furthest extent, in a way, uh, was in the south and was Masaccio. And Masaccio, Masaccio lived 1401 to 1428. And he began, he carried the painting of nature to its, right to its peak. And if you go to the Carmen Chapel, if I had you in Florence, I would have leave the big museums by this time and take you to the little Carmen Chapel. And there you can look at Masaccio's paintings, and it's absolutely fabulous how nature stands out in these paintings. Actually, it's so, so direct that he and his master paint some things a lot, uh, on the same, uh, same mural. And yet you can just pick out what Masaccio does is against what his master did because nature has such a prominent place. So nature now has a prominent place. He paints light, uh, light in a proper way. He makes an uh, arrangement in his painting, which is something new. Uh, we find him, uh, we find him painting space. And this was a real revolution. And at this particular moment, I would insist that it could have gone either way. It could have been a return on the basis of biblical teaching. It could have been a return to a proper place of nature. Instead of this, it became something else. Whereas I emphasize in my books, nature ate up grace. But it didn't have to be. At this particular point, it could have been something very beautiful and very wonderful. And with Masaccio, it could have gone either way. It was not just Masaccio. There was a whole little movement at that time in, in which they were influencing each other because these people always influence each other. 
and it's one of my thesis, that this is one thing which is wrong with the way we have education, that most of us go through universities and even through theological seminary, and we're not really educated men because we're never taught the association between the disciplines. And I feel this is one mark of true education. A truly educated man will be a man who knows something of the relationship between the disciplines. And this, there ought to be, there ought to be this. And there ought to be this in theological seminary. I feel there ought to be an art course in theological seminary. Uh, there ought to be a literature course. There can't be a complete, uh, uh, complete, um, uh, study of it. But there ought to be able, there ought to be seen an association in the, in the moment in which we're living between the theological battles and the battles in the external representation of these things. So we find that in Florence, in this particular time, you had Masaccio, it was all happening in Florence. You had Gioberti. Those of you who have been to Florence or seen the uh, illustrations of Florence, remember these marvelous golden doors of Gioberti on the baptistry in which there's space. And for the first time, you begin to feel nature really in the door. Donatello began to work, and you have his marvelous works in which, uh, again, you have real, a real uh, humanity, and you have a real nature. And then you had Brunelleschi, who made the great dome at Florence, in which he was working in space and in light, uh, in architecture. It all happened at once. It was very exciting. And I think it can all be traced back to Thomas Aquinas. And I'm saying up to this point, it could have been good. It could have been good. You have nature, you have nature now being really having a proper place. And let us remember as Bible-believing Christians that if I really am being biblical, nature will have a proper place in my life. Because God made the world. When we are, our idea of creation is not just a theological argument. Our idea of creation should lead to a life form. God has made the body as well as the soul. God has made the stars. God has made the ocean. God has made the birds. And all these things, therefore, are God. And they should have their proper place. And we are not really being biblical Christians, and our spirituality is really platonic. Rather than true biblical spirituality, if nature does not have its place, if my spirituality, in quotes, shuts me off from nature, it is no longer a biblical spirituality. And this is the thing which I try to stress in my little booklet, um, little pamphlet on the new super spirituality. So up to this point, you had something good. But then, of course, the bad set in, just as you would expect it to do, wherein the mind has been set free from the, uh, from the control of scripture. And what you begin to find is this tremendous thing growing up of the nature and grace dilemma. And the modern man is still living in the middle of this, and no one has solved it. And I think it's unsolvable from a viewpoint of rationalism, man beginning only from himself. So you would have nature, and you would have grace, and as I point out so often, the grace is not our Christian word grace. It has to do, it has to do uh, with God as opposed to creation. It has to do with the man's soul as opposed to his body. It has to do with what the unseen world, the results of the unseen world can bring into the seen world. And eventually, it always comes down to these are the universal, or you could say the absolute, and these are the particulars. And I've already discussed the particulars, what the particulars are, the individual thing. And we're swept back into the area of Plato, where Plato said, unless there is an absolute, nothing has any meaning. And now suddenly, they had no absolute. And uh, as the first thing out of Thomas Aquinas comes the good aspect, and now comes the bad aspect. And I always say that wherever you make nature autonomous, wherever you make nature autonomous, nature will always be that grip. My own little sentence in the hope that people will never forget. 
As soon as you make anything in nature autonomous, grace uh, gradually will be destroyed. And you could see this in the High Renaissance in the area of art. So you would have, for example, prior to this, Mary was so holy that you could never picture Mary. If you, if I had you in Florence again, I would take you to the baptistry now in the great mosaics on the ceilings of the baptistry in Florence, in which, in which you could see Mary is not a person. She is a symbol. You could have put in the mosaics of the Byzantine world the, the, the letter M. Just as much as M would have been a symbol for Mary and not a picture of Mary, the mosaics are a symbol of Mary and not a picture of Mary. You're, Mary is something so high and so holy uh, and so apart from nature that you don't think of her as a woman. You don't think of her as a Jewish girl. So now when it comes, when, when, the, when the good side of the Aquinas thinking sweeps down through the field of art, suddenly Mary becomes a real girl. And that's not wrong, it's right, because she was a real girl. And after all, the Bible does not teach these things that the later Roman Catholic Church taught about her. She was a beautiful Jewish girl. This is what we can think of Mary as being. Uh, the Bible doesn't say she's beautiful, but I've always been sure she's beautiful. <laughs> um, so what, what she really is, is a Jewish girl. A Jewish girl. Uh, and now suddenly she's being painted. She's being painted as something different. She's being painted as a Jewish girl. And we could say, hooray, isn't that great? But the difficulty is the destruction is set in and nature is eating up grace. So pretty soon, pretty soon what you find is that all the, many of the painters are painting Mary in a way that would have been unthinkable before. She is not only made a, a, a normal girl, but she is devaluated. She is devaluated. The holy is removed from it. The good is removed from it. And the illustrations I would like, I like to use are, uh, are Filippo Lippi who painted about 1450, his virgin. And it's the most beautiful picture I think Philip Lippi ever painted. And you enter the room in the gallery there in Florence, and it's the picture that immediately strikes you in, the, in this room of Philip Lippi. And you say, isn't that wonderful? He's painted, a real Jew, he's painted a real girl as the Madonna. But the difficulty was, and that is, there's a difficulty, and that is everybody in Florence knew that she was his mistress, and this was his illegitimate child. So nature has eaten up great. The pendulum has gone too far. The pendulum has gone too far. Now, this is not the only illustration of this. Even Van Eck or Van Eyck, as I say, people pronounce his name differently, painted the same sort of thing in its so-called Chancellor Rowland. Uh, and in, we find that he did this about 1435, something like this, in which previous to this, Mary was always pictured as great and big, and the people around her always very, very small. But in this picture, it was reversed, and in reality, they look like equals. Chancellor Rowland, who's coming to bear his gifts to Mary, is made equal with Mary, but not only equal with Mary, but in reality, when you study the picture carefully, he's, he's greater. He predominates. Nature has eaten up great. Uh, another man where, who painted the same sort of vein, where I think you can see nature eating up grace in a way that is open to observation, uh, it was uh, the French painter Fouquet also about 1450. And he painted, he painted a Mary. And Mary, of course, often shows her breast because she's feeding the baby Jesus. But in this case, everybody knew that this was the queen's mistress. We even know her name, Agnes Sorel. Uh, and she was, so everybody, when they looked at this picture, knew that they were looking at a Mary, but they were looking at the mistress's breast. Nature has eaten up grace. The whole thing is finished. The game's over. So you come immediately now to the to the good side of Thomas Aquinas is open in the door, but the bad side. The good side, but the bad side. 
And the good side is that nature now has been given more place, but because there is no, because there is no absolute, because uh, uh, it, the intellect has been made autonomously free, therefore grace is destroyed. All these upper things are destroyed. Now, in reaction against that, the Neoplatonic thinking reasserted itself in Florence. And Cosimo, who died in 1464, saw that you had to begin to put something on the upper story or you were going to lose everything, including human government. And Cosmo really understood the rules of the game. And we haven't outlived these problems because this is a problem of our own country at the present time. And that is, what's in the upper story that's going to give a meaning to our government? And Cosmo understood this, so he reestablished, he reestablished a platonic thinking which has been called Neoplatonic. And as Ficino, F-I-C-I-N-O, taught Lorenzo the Magnificent, and so you began to have an emphasis now in the attempt to bring back a platonic thinking against the Aristotelian. And you remember again what I reminded you when I tried to draw a picture for you today, a word picture of, um, of Raphael's painting the School of Athens, where you have Aristotle and you have Plato with Aristotle, with Plato pointing upward for absolutes, uh, Aristotle going like this to the particulars. And the particulars had gone too far and the government of Florence was challenged. And so we find that a Neoplatonic thinking was put in its place, not so much just following Plato as Platonius, uh, and Ficino is the great outstanding figure, and he taught Lorenzo the Magnificent. And a man who was tremendously influenced by this at this time was Leonardo da Vinci, 1452 to 1519. To put this in its proper perspective with a Reformation, you must remember Luther's thesis was nailed to the door in 1517. In other words, two things are happening simultaneously. Before we get done, we'll see the three things were happening simultaneously. But now just the two. The Reformation and the Renaissance was happening at the same time. And Leonardo da Vinci, one of those great brains of, the, of, the, of Hmong men, really understood what was going to happen. He understood the dilemma. He understood it with tremendous force. Uh, he really saw where the, what the problem was going to be. In other words, you can find that Leonardo actually looked down through the centuries. He looked down 500 years, and he, under, he would have understood the problem of the Berkeley Revolution. That may be a strange way to say it, but he would have. If he suddenly had been in the midst of the Berkeley Revolution, Leonardo would have understood it. He wouldn't have been taken by surprise, because he already saw the dilemma. Leonardo, you must remember, is the first modern mathematician. Not only a great artist, but he's the first modern mathematician. And he saw the dilemma was that if you work on the basis only for man, what we would call rationalism, if you do this, what you do, what you do is you deal with mathematics. And eventually you will lead, this will only lead to particulars and no universal. And therefore you will end only with mechanics. And the amazing thing is Leonardo understood the rules of the game for our own generation. He, he wouldn't have been surprised when the, when the young people broke out in 1964 and said, we're just being made IBM cards. He wouldn't have understood the IBM card bit. But he would have, he would have completely understood the mechanics dilemma. And so we find that, we find therefore that he saw, he saw how it was going to lead. That if you deal with mathematics, you only have particulars, you only have statistical averages, and that can only be machine -made. So Leonardo da Vinci tried to paint a universal. 
and he tried to paint what he called the soul. But the soul was really the universal. It wasn't a man's soul. It was the idea that you painted and painted and painted and sketched and sketched and sketched to try to sketch a universal. A universal baby, a universal woman, something. Some universal you try to make. Because he saw, he saw that math, the mathematician on the basis of rationalism was not going to come up, come up with answers. And he hoped the painters, as very sensitive men, would come up with experiential universals. And really and truly, that's as, that's as up-to-date as, up to date as, uh, as 1973. It's just like this. And Leonardo, in his brilliance, in his brilliance, really understood this. If you ever want to read more about this, in a great big thick book like this, of Leonardo da Vinci, is the name of it, Leonardo is the book, uh, and it is, uh, there's a Giovanni Gentili, who writes on the philosophic concepts of Leonardo and points these things out very, very carefully and very, very well. So much now for the High Renaissance. What you have is, uh, what you have is Thomas Aquinas leading to something good. And please remember the good side. Nature is made, nature is made important. And I just long, every time I go to see Masaccio's work, I just long and wish that there'd been some people there that somehow could have brought the Reformation in contact with Masaccio and that this thing really could have taken the right direction and nature could have had the right place without it being autonomous so that nature wouldn't have eaten up grace and you'd have had something beautiful. And as a matter of fact, I think the Dutch painters that follow the Reformation in reality did just this. Now, as I said, that the Reformation was happening at the same time, the Reformation is happening at the same time as the High Renaissance. So I pointed out Leonardo da Vinci, 1452 to 1519. And you ought to know, those of you who are students here, you ought to know the dates of the Reformation. Calvin was born in 1509. 1517, 95 Theses nailed to the door. The Institute's written in 1536. At the Diet of Fires, the men were called Protestants for the first time, 1529. And don't you see this is the same period? Exactly the same period. In other words, these things were fighting, and they were really fighting in many of the same questions. But the Reformation never got into the nature and grace problem. The nature and grace problem was the high renaissance has come down through the intellectual world and exploded in our own day, as we'll see as we go along. The Reformation didn't solve the nature and grace problem. This is an important difference. It didn't solve the nature and grace problem because it didn't have one. It did not solve the nature and grace problem. The Reformation is the Reformation had no nature and grace problem. And it began at the place where, 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 uh, where Thomas Aquinas had gone astray. It began with a true fall. A true fall in which not only the will is fallen, but the intellect is fallen too. The intellect is not autonomous. Now actually you can say, what is the Reformation? And you can explain it in various ways. But personally, I like to emphasize that the Reformation was a stand against the humanism that had come into the Roman Catholic Church. I think it's exactly what it was. And the humanism had come into the Roman Catholic Church over a long period of time. It would be my thesis that it began with Constantine. I personally have never been convinced Constantine was converted. I'm not saying that I know he wasn't, but I'm far from convinced that he was. And I think from Constantine on, what you began to have was a humanism growing up in the Roman Catholic Church, coming to a high point, uh, coming to a high point about 800. Uh, with Gregory, and then going on to another high point with a Thomas Aquinas and spilling over into the Renaissance. <coughs> now then, uh, they, and the, the humanism in the Roman Catholic Church showed itself at two points. 
The first point was uh, a divided authority. That the Bible was the word of God, but tradition also is an authority. And you must realize that the tradition of the Roman Catholic Church is not basically a tradition of memory of men, a verbal memory as opposed to the written memory of the Bible. It's rather that the church has a right to generate truth. And this is really their basic view. What they call, I haven't heard it for a few years, but ten years ago it was very popular for the Roman Catholic Church to say, we are a living church. And by this they meant that they were, the church had authority in itself to generate truth. So you could say, for example, the Assumption of Mary. There is no Roman Catholic theologian I have ever met who did not agree that there is no verbal memory of the Assumption of Mary out of the past. It was just as the church generated it. The second, the second point where the humanism was in the Roman Catholic Church, uh, a very crucial point, and that is how to be saved. And just as in authority, they had a divided authority between the Bible and tradition, so also in salvation, they had a divided salvation between what Christ does and what you do and you must do. That you must, pardon me, merit the merit of Christ is the right way to express classical Roman Catholic teaching. You must merit the merit of Christ. Now the Reformation came along, and the Reformation completely, completely put its emphasis on the other side. A non-humanist salvation in both of these, a non-humanist emphasis in both of these areas. So the first thing you had, uh, the first thing you had, and you mustn't, you mustn't only think that it's only the few names that most of us remember that, that, that understood these things in the Reformation. Curious thing is, there, there were hundreds of men who really were brilliant who took part of the Reformation. We, we remember very easily Calvin, Zwingling, and Luther. Uh, something like this. We have tried to bring back in La Brie the name Pharrell, Ehem Pharrell simply because Pharrell was also a great reformer before Calvin in Switzerland. But there were other great men. There was a man by the name of Haller in Bern. And when you read his writings, they're exciting. They're exciting because he understood where the battle was being fought. He really understood where the battle was being fought. And this, and so we find that they had two, they had two only generated to meet these humanisms in the Roman Catholic Church. And the first was only faith, faith only. But now we must be very careful not to bring into this a 20th century misconception. And that is, when it says faith only, it's not faith. It's not faith against reason that they were talking about. But it was faith against works. And this is really a very, 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 very crucial distinction. A distinction which is overwhelming. It wasn't that they saying was reason. It's not that they were denying the validity of reason. None of these men did. What they were denying was that you could get to heaven on the basis of your work. So faith only, faith only is a statement not against the validity of reason, but against the divided salvation in which you would bring a humanistic element into, uh, into your salvation. The second thing where you had an only was only scripture. Only scripture. Now you notice that it was only scripture. The, we have two special revelations. The propositional revelation, verbalized revelation of the scripture, and the revelation of God in Christ. And I detect uh, uh, what I think is a serious drift among evangelicals, is that you listen to many of them stand in their pulpits, in their Christian colleges, thanking God for the revelation we have in Christ. 
but all too little never thanking God for the propositional revelation we have in Scripture. But the Reformers understood that you didn't know anything about the revelation of God in Christ unless you had a propositional revelation in the Scripture. So consequently, just as the first only against humanism was only faith, so the second emphasis was only Scripture as opposed to the humanism in the Roman Catholic Church. Now, the reason they had no nature and grace problem in the Reformation is simply because the Scripture spoke in both areas. So, they would have emphasized, and the Bible would emphasize too, that God tells about himself truly, not exhaustively, because he cannot tell about himself exhaustively. But more than this, you can, we as finite can know nothing exhaustively. But God also spoke in propositional terms about the cosmos and about history, including man. So consequently, therefore, they had a unity which did not allow a nature and grace problem on the basis of revelation. I, I really wish Christians could understand that. It may sound simplistic as I'm giving it, but it's anything but simplistic. We have forgotten it. The evangelical world has forgotten it all too thoroughly. All too, th all too thoroughly they forget exactly all the riches we have in Christ, uh, have in the scriptures, as well as in Christ. And one of them is, is that we have no nature and grace problem. The reason, the reason the high renaissance had its nature and grace problem is because, is because they started with rationalism. Remember my definition of rationalism. The definition of rationalism is man beginning autonomously from himself, that even though he is only finite, he tries to gather enough particulars to make his own universals, and he rejects all knowledge outside of himself and expressly all knowledge from God. So consequently, these people, first, first, a base is rationalism, and it leads naturally into a nature and grace problem. And some of the men try to see these together, but they fail. And the failure came to its, came to its height uh, with the explosion in the modern, modern generation 500 years later. Time takes history, time to work itself out, but it works itself out. On the other hand, the Reformation had no nature and great problem because it's revelation. So in reality, the real discussion is between revelation and rationalism. And this is the thing I've tried to stress in my this little book of mine, uh, which finishes the trilogy of my three central books, The God Was There, Escape from Reason, and He Is There and He's Not Silent. I've tried to stress this factor, that the important factor is God is not silent. We do not have an answer just because there is a God. Though we couldn't have an answer if there was no God. But we need a God who has spoken. And the Reformation had a God who had spoken, and consequently, therefore, they had no dilemma. They had no nature and grace problem. Now, it doesn't mean, it doesn't mean, as I've said, it doesn't mean that the, um, it doesn't mean that the, uh, that they believed they had exhaustive truth either about God or about the cosmos and about history, but they believed they had what I have, the term I have coined, a tr uh, true truth. And this is not, this is not just a, a, a foolish statement of speech, I think, because the word truth doesn't mean anything today, and therefore you have to invent some kind of a term, and I've used the word true truth. Maybe it'll be no good five years from now or ten years from now, but right at this moment it, it has real meaning. It's, uh, it, there's something which is really true, objectively true, which you don't have of exhaustive truth, it is true, but you have, uh, but you have true truth. Now, actually, the man who understood what the battle was, I think better than anybody else, is my opinion, is Gehem Pharrell. 
And I think Pharrell, for whom we've known the study, may name the study Pharrell House, showed he understood the battle better than even Calvin and, uh, Calvin and Luther, because it was Pharrell who, in Basel, stood not only against the Roman Catholic Church on one hand, but against Erasmus on the other. He was the one reformer in those early days who saw that there were two humanisms, the humanism in the Roman Catholic Church and the humanism out of the Roman Catholic Church, and they were both going to become an enemy of the gospel. And Pharrell really understood this. Maybe he wasn't very polite, but he never even went to visit, visit Erasmus when they both lived in Basel. In those days, Basel was a very small city. And to make his point, he didn't go visit him. Now, we might wish he'd gone to visit him and been polite, but let us be thankful that he made his point so nicely. That he saw that you had to say no to the two kinds of humanism. The humanism in the, in the church and the humanism out of the church. With humanism now being, in the way I'm using it, a synonym for rationalism. Man being autonomous from the scriptures. But in the Bible, in the, in the Bible-believing Reformation, they stressed the fact that nothing was autonomous from the scriptures. That the Bible not only talked about God, where he talked about himself truly, but he talked about the cosmos, and he talked about, he talked about history, and he talked about man, and he talked about nature. That all these things, all these things have an emphasis in the Bible. And then this brings us to this chart uh, that you know I use so often in my work, and someday it'll wear out, but I don't think it's worn out yet. Now that is that you have God, and he is a personal God, and he's an infinite God. And on the side of God's infinity, you have, you have a chasm here, an absolute chasm here. And you have man, and you have the animals, and you have the plants, and you have the pure machine portion of the universe represented by the hydrogen atom. And on the side of God's infinity, man is just as separated from God as the hydrogen atom is separated from God. But, on the other hand, that man is made in the image of God. And the more I work through the years, the more I see that the concept of man being made in the image of God is so crucial for every, every kind of Christian thinking, and especially in the 20th century. And now the chasm is not here, the chasm is here, and man is separated from non-man in the form of the animal, the plant, and the pure machine. So what you have over here now is that you begin to understand man. You understand who man is, and there is no nature and grace problem in regard to man in the Reformation, because they saw it in this way. They did have a different dilemma, and that is what I would call, uh, that is man's dilemma, and that is that man is great, but man is cruel. The man is great, but man is cruel. But they understood that the dilemma, that the man's dilemma is not a metaphysical dilemma because he is small, just because he is finite, but his dilemma is because he is great. He is made in the, the, the image of God, and he is revolted against God, and what separates him now is not a metaphysical division, but a moral division by his true moral guilt. And that's man's dilemma. So you have an answer why man is great, different from non-man, and yet you have an answer why man is separated from God. He is created in the image of God, and this is his wonder. And you have the fact that the Bible does emphasize truly and strongly that Adam was a non-programmed man. He was a non-programmed man. That's the best way to say it, I think, for our generation. He was significant. He was great. And he revolted against God, which was awful. And now you have the dilemma of man. Not because he's finite, but because he has a true fall and he has a true guilt. 
And then this opens the door to the next step, and that is the true work of Christ in dying in substitution and propitiation. This all flows one thing after another. The scripture's emphasis, the scripture's emphasis, the Reformation's emphasis was a unit. It was a unit. And at the same time in which the Reformation was battling through these things and not having a real problem at all because they were accepting indeed revelation from God, at the same time the Renaissance was going in the opposite direction and leading into absolute destruction. So the thing that happens at Berkeley in 1964 in our own mess at the present time, it really comes out of the, of the, uh, of the high Renaissance, um, back beyond that, of course, to all rationalism, but we can see a point, a real point of the high Renaissance where this whole thing, the seeds are already laid at that time for the destruction of all would follow. Uh, Jacob Burkhardt, who lived in Basel and wrote in 1860, is somewhat discredited now among scum scholars, but I think Burkhardt is only discredited because people don't like his conclusions, because he really holds conclusions that throw light very clearly on the result of the Reformation in contrast uh, to the uh, to the Renaissance. And he points out the distinction that in the North, men, women were made more free, but it wasn't a freedom leading toward chaos. Burk uh, we find that he points out, Burkhardt points out, Jacob Burkhardt, uh, the fact uh, that in the South you had a t tremendous tension growing up, uh, so you would have the novelists and the comic, poet, comic poets down here in tension against the lyric poets. You have Danny loving a woman with spirit living, Beatrice with spiritual love, and then having another woman to his wife to wash his shirt. And what you have is Burkhardt shows, I think, quite clearly the tension, the real tension that is already developing. And I don't like to see him debunked. I feel that he is one of the uh, victims of modern man's refusing to see anything that challenges his own perspective. I don't mean he's perfect in every point, but I think in general his history is good history. Now, therefore, you, so you come in the Reformation, you see, to a situation which is entirely different from the Renaissance. And you can must see that it's two things it's not. What you have in the, in the, in the, uh, in the Renaissance, in the Reformation, is it is not platonic. It is not that the soul is high and the body and the intellect is low. They never took that position. These people were not platonic. The platonic thing comes from somewhere else. It's part. It's a part of the uh, what I think is the reaction in the Renaissance uh, to uh, to the Aristotelian thinking that had entered. So what you have, they are not. They don't put these. There's two things the Reformation did not. They did not say that the soul was good. Make a division here. They did not say that the soul was good and the soul was high and the body was low and bad and the intellect was suspect. They did not say that. On the other hand, they didn't do the other thing, and they didn't say that here is the soul, and then that you have autonomous man. And the interesting thing is they reject both on the basis of inspiration of scripture, of a real propositional revelation. So they had they had neither a platonic, they had neither a platonic thinking, nor did they have, on the other hand, uh, an autonomous thinking that would destroy man eventually, as nature would be would destroy grace. So the whole Bible is upon the fact that here is man and here, made in the image of God, and the man is completely fallen, and because he is completely fallen, there must be a complete redemption, and there must be no autonomous man, and this carries on with it then to something that we lose in the evan much of the evangelical world because we forget this emphasis, and that is after we're saved, Christ is Lord of all. He's Lord of all. 
is Lord of everything. He is Lord of the soul and he's Lord of the body. He is Lord of the, of the soul, but he is Lord of the intellect. He is Lord of the soul, but he is Lord of the cultural. But the cultural and the intellectual are not love. And I want to tell you that much of evangelicalism has gone astray in losing that point. We have forgotten it, we have forgotten it, we have forgotten it to our tragedy. To our tragedy. But it all fits together. It all fits together with a marvelous, marvelous thing that, uh, that we find in the Reformation of having no nature and grace problem. It is not the soul is great and the body is bad. It is not that the intellect is suspect. It is not this. The intellect must not be allowed to be autonomous. The intellect is also under the scripture. But the intellect is not something to count as sinful as sinful per se. It is not. And because of this, therefore, flowing out of this, they were neither platonic on one hand, nor did they have an autonomous man on the other. And therefore, after the both needed salvation on the basis of the blood of Christ, but after both had salvation upon the blood of Christ, then both, 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 both are under the lordship of Christ, and the whole man stands under his lordship. So you have something very beautiful and you have something very complete. So what you have up to this moment in our lectures is the, the Renaissance and where it led, uh, and then to the, uh, on the other hand, the Reformation and how it stood against it in its completeness and its wholeness. Now tomorrow morning we will go on and we will leave the philosophic side and we will turn to the scientific side and how this led to the Berkeley Revolution.